Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Every week, we step aside here to take 48 minutes to examine the value of the work we're doing. You know, we know work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck, but it's our best opportunity to live out our calling, to create the legacy we want to leave behind. What is the work that you're doing this week? You know, there's a part in the Bible, in the very first part of Genesis, where it talks about work is a curse. We've had some interesting discussions about that. And of course, I get challenged on my view of work all the time because I don't view work as a curse. What happened there? I mean, work was a sign before the events that um, we call the fall of man occurred in the Garden of Eden, however you frame that. But, um, you know, work was a sign before that. It was a part of the fulfillment of being everything that God intended for man to be. The part that is cursed is that you would have work that you would not want to do or that somebody else forced you to do. And yeah, in that sense, that kind of work is a curse. But if you find work that is a natural alignment of how God has gifted you, you enjoy doing it. Work and play blend together. So it's an entirely different kind of thing. Well, anyway, I won't go on on that. I'm developing some new ideas around that, though, because there's a whole lot of theology that has got kind of twisted. And I think prevents people from viewing work in a healthy way. If you have the idea that work is a curse, then it doesn't even make any sense to, I mean, you, you would feel guilty having work that you enjoyed. You would feel like somehow you had missed, you know, what God intended for you to do, to have work that you enjoy. Well, that's not the way I want to live my life. And I know it's not the way that you want to live yours as well. Hey, a couple other quick tidbits here. One is our intro music. I continue to kind of massage the idea of our intro music. As you know, we've been using Taking Care of Business for a long, long time. Back when I was on the radio and now since we've just been doing the podcast, Taking Care of Business. business. And I love that. It's become kind of our trademark, part of our brand. So in as much as I have a lot of people offer to provide new intro music, I really hate to move away from taking care of business. Now, I get a lot of things sent to me, and I, I had one that I played a few weeks ago, and I got a lot of comments on it. Uh, cute piece, intro music, and done pretty well. Alex Fenson from, well, as you know, he he is not from the United States. He, he ain't living in Alabama, for sure. I'll play it again here in a minute just to remind you of what he's doing. Then I have people like Chris Seal from Tune Plant has sent me some great samples of what he'd like to have us use. I mean, I appreciate the talent out there and offers to help us in having music that is a significant part of what we do here. I like taking care of business. Now, what? Oh, let me pay, play this piece from Alex, and then I'll explain where I am in this process. Welcome to the 48 Days to the Work You Love Internet Radio Show with Dan Miller who, for the next 48 minutes or so, will share his experiences and provide you with advice on how you can add value to your working life and so bring positive changes and a positive impact to other areas of your life as well. 
So whether you're working for the man or whether you're working for yourself, sit back for the next 48 minutes and let Dan do the work and show you how you can say goodbye to those Monday morning blues. Here on 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller. You know, I can't help but chuckle when I hear, hear that. He packed a lot in there, whether you're working for the man or working for yourself. I mean, he did a great job of kind of pulling out the principles we talk about here. And, of course, Alex is from England, as you can hear from his uh, accent. But, again, I appreciate the things that are coming in. Here's where I am on this issue. And people ask me about that. You know, do they need to get a licensing for using a song? Well, yes, technically you do. Here's where I am on taking care of business. I contacted ASCAP. Now, ASCAP is the big organization that handles licensing. If you have a restaurant and you play music in there, you're going to pay a licensing fee either to BMI or ASCAP. I mean, you can't just play a radio in a place of business and not pay a licensing fee for the music that's played over the radio. And that may seem kind of redundant, but it's just part of the industry. That's the way it's been done and has been for many years. I use 59 Seconds of taking care of business at the front end of my show. 25 seconds, it starts to fade out. I talk over that, but it's 59 seconds. I talked to ASCAP about what I wanted to do, continued use of taking care of business. And they said, with a partial use of one song only, none of their licensing really was a fit for that at all. That I needed to go directly to the publisher of that song and just get a licensing agreement with them for that one song. So I have gone to the publisher of Taking Care of Business, and this has been going on for 30 days now with emails and phone calls going back and forth. They are talking to their people in New York. They're talking to their people in L.A. They're trying to get this figured out, and they can't give me an answer, which is kind of an interesting thing because I told them, I said, I can't believe this This isn't something you don't deal with 100 times a day. I mean, with the explosion of internet programming outside of traditional radio, people like I, who are using clips from songs, now granted, most people just don't even check on the licensing, they just do it. Now, they know that, but again, this is a gray area, and it's one of those things where technically you should have a license. And people ask me about that in my use of taking care of business, but here's where I am. I've gone right to the publisher. I've asked, just tell me, what is it going to take? What, how does this need to be structured? But it is complicated. I asked one of my buddies in the music industry just this morning about that, and he said it does get complicated because you have multiple writers, and you may have a whole lot of people's royalties involved in one particular song. And then when it breaks down, we're using just a little tiny piece of one particular song. I mean, you may be talking about $75 and it's the the people that are involved in having to make the decision don't see it worth their time. So then that kind of begs the question, okay, does that mean we just go ahead and use anything we want to without even checking on licensing? But I think this is one of those areas where we're going to see increased regulation as this whole industry matures a little bit more. But anyway, for what it's worth, right now, that's where it stands. I'm continuing to use that. They know that I am. Nobody's trying to stop me. Every once in a while, you know, we hear about some landmark case where they take a 16-year-old and, you know, fine him $336,000 because of his illegal use of songs. You know, they try to make big statements out of people once in a while. And I certainly don't want to be on the receiving end of that. So I took the initiative, but just flat can't get clarity. It's an area that's fairly new and nobody has specific answers. 
Well, I've been writing some about creativity. Creativity is one of those things that uh, we hope shows up. I mean, uh, there's nothing that uh, makes me, takes me back quicker than for somebody to say, you know, I don't have a creative thought, never have, never will. I mean, I, that's not true. I mean, I can't imagine not having creative thoughts. Sigmund Freud said frustration is the early sign of creativity. And I wrote a blog this week about neuroses, but those things that people see as what you would categorize as pathological, perhaps even, often lead to extreme burst of creativity. So don't, don't, don't chase that away. You know, don't chase away discontentment. Emerson writes about divine discontentment. Sometimes, you know, the discontentment we feel, I mean, how else is God going to talk to us and tell us, you really ought to explore some new options, dude. You know, look at some other things that you have available to you other than just continuing to do what you're always doing. I mean, we know that just being totally content with what we're doing doesn't lead to change in any way. That's why often change, even if it's unexpected or unwelcome, leads to better things because it forces us to take a fresh look at where we are, where we're going, and what our options are. But creativity is one of those things that I try to nurture in myself. And I bought the rights to a little book recently, the little book of big ideas. The whole book is about creativity. It's a wonderful compilation of quotations and just ideas about how we stimulate our creativity so that we can come up with new ideas, new ways of having meaningful relationships, new ways of starting businesses, generating income, all the things that we talk about here. And I know that you want to have in place in your life. So look for ways to stimulate your creativity. I mean, I think that all actively creative people take risk. And I hate to even frame it like that because I have a different view of what risk is. I mean, risk is when you have no control over something. So if you you know, pull a, the, the handle on a slot machine after having put in a dollar, yeah, that's risk because you have no control over it. It's just chance. But that's not what we do as business people. And yet, as creative people, we do step into new territory that other people would see as risky. But keep in mind the fact that extremely successful people view risk in pretty much exactly the opposite way that the average American does when it comes to work. The average American thinks if I can just get a job with a company, boom, that's secure, that's safe. They give me a paycheck every Friday. They make a 401k contribution, take care of my medical benefits. But you know what? That's an illusion. That is not safe. In my mind, that's extremely risky. You show up every morning with the possibility that one person can put you on the street before you hit lunchtime. To me, that's very risky. What very successful people see is if you take an idea, you put legs on that yourself, you come up with some kind of an idea, and it can be selling hot dogs out of a cart. But if you're doing that, you're probably going to have 376 people walking by every day buying a hot dog. You have to have 376 people decide to not do business with you anymore to put you out of work. To me, that's a much more secure position and not risky as opposed to having a job, which I see as lacking security and risky. Now, we're not talking about right or wrong, good or bad here. We're just talking about how do you frame those things? Be careful about framing as risky something that would, in fact, increase your security. But I think creative people uh, challenge assumptions. You know, this is a, a tricky kind of one, but we see this. I mean, even like... Years ago, it was believed 
that a human being could not break the four-minute mile. Doctors told us that the human heart would explode if anybody got close to breaking a four-minute mile. Well, then, and I think it was 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. Well, within a year, there were multiple people who did that. At one college event, not long thereafter, there were eight college athletes who broke a four-minute mile. Not a, not a whole lot of change during that time, except that somebody challenged the assumption that the human heart would explode and that it was not physically possible to do that. But I think creative people, people who accomplish things, do challenge assumptions. Now, I've been known to take this to an extreme, and I know, and sometimes it, it flies in the face. My, my kids remind me of something that I said. I can't believe I said it but they remind me very clearly that I did. In defense for some of my actions, this was years and years ago when the kids were little and we were in a car, and I suspect that I crept through a a red light or was exceeding the speed limit or did something in terms of driving. I, I enjoy driving, and I drive aggressively when I'm by myself, I guess. Now, not that's not to put other people in danger, but I like fast and loud and those things when it comes to driving. So I was probably expressing something of that. And one of the kids commented, you know, dad, you're going over the speed limit or whatever. And I said, and again, take this, frame this in context of creativity, not in being a rebel, but I said, rules are made for people who don't know how to think. Now I probably ought to apologize for that, but I said that and my kids remind me of that a lot. Now, again, in context, I mean, I I really do believe there's some truth in that. We make rules because, I mean, even when we we see religions with a lot of rules, it avoids having people to have to think about individual situations. But I think challenging assumptions is a healthy kind of thing. Now, this is not to just live underground and ignore what's put there for the good of all, but don't be afraid to challenge what may be assumptions. I mean, look at the things through history. I mean, when very brilliant and intellectual thinking people thought the world was flat, and now we know that it's not. I mean, there were people who were put to death for their beliefs that years later were proven to be absolutely true. So there's been a lot of challenging assumptions along the way where people, in fact, came up with better ideas. I think creative people just see things differently. I mean, so if you're one who does those things that I've mentioned, you, you know, like to take risk, you challenge assumptions, you're curious about things, how things work. I mean, as a little kid, I was curious. I mean, the lawnmower, to me, it was not something to keep running to mow the grass. It was something to take it apart and figure out, how does this thing work? How can we have this thing that provides its own source of energy? I mean, I was extremely curious about that and would take it apart and see, you know, how does a carburation system work to inject a little bit of air and gas as a mixture and then be ignited by a spark plug, cause an explosion, and that creates a force that then pushes a piston down? I mean, to me, that's something to be understood. I love getting in there and figuring out how that works. And my early work on cars, you know, was to help me understand how they work and then, of course, how we could improve on those and do things were pretty cool to make it better. I mean, I would do things like with, uh, I mean, we were pretty limited on the farm and I didn't have a lot of fancy things, but I was always experimenting with things. Well, if you remember 
if you were raised on a farm, you know that a tractor has what's called a power takeoff in the back. So it's a shaft that turns, and by that you then power, whether it's a hay baler or a chopper or a bush hog or whatever it happens to be, that's driven by the power takeoff. So you have a shaft coming out of the back of a tractor that turns. Well, what if you took that and attached a drive shaft to it, and then I had the rear axle assembly of a car. Now, I apologize if this is mechanical in a way that you can't visualize it, but if you're a car person or a farmer, you certainly can visualize it. So I took our little Ford tractor and I fashioned a connection between a car rear end, so a rear end of a car with the two tires still on it, coming out of the center of that rear end is what's called the differential, and that's where the power takeoff or the drive shaft then goes up to the engine in a car. I took that drive shaft and attached it to the power takeoff on our little Ford tractor. What that means is then I could get the tractor up to its maximum speed and then take the tractor out of gear but engage the power takeoff. The power takeoff would drive the drive shaft, which then running back through the differential and now the car tires that were underground behind the the tractor would push the tractor much faster than it was intended to go. That's the kind of stuff that I did as a kid. I mean, I just figured out how to do things differently. Now that was way outside of its intended use, but it was something that I figured out how to make work. And it was pretty exciting actually. Well, let me go on here and get to some of the questions that we've got for today. I mean, sometimes I get on a train of thought like this, and, it, and when it relates to a whole lot of questions that I get, and I get a whole lot of questions about creativity and how to, about, to, how, about how to stimulate your creativity, how to do things differently, how to see things that people don't see around you. And I, I think it's healthy to nurture that experience. Read books like Windows of the Soul by Ken Geyer. And then go for a walk through your woods. You'll never see the woods the same again. You ought to notice things when you're walking down a nature trail that other people don't see. And you can learn how to do that and do that well. Let me go to the questions here. Dave says, my wife works with mentally disabled adults through a nonprofit organization funded through the state and donations, teaching them how to function within the community. She wants to start her own organization. I'd prefer a non I prefer a for-profit one, but can't see how that could work. Any suggestions on how she could start her own either nonprofit or for-profit? When you're working with a disadvantaged, a marginalized group like you're talking about, it's tough to make it just a straight for-profit. Do I believe that it can be done? Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing an explosion of ethical capitalism, social entrepreneurship, and a whole bunch of other things that it's that it's called, where things that previously were seen as just in the domain of nonprofits, where you have an organization and people have to feel sorry for you and give you money, I mean, that whole model is being dismantled. That's a tough model to make work. There are hundreds and hundreds, well, there are actually like two million nonprofits in the world. So do the math on that. I mean, there are going to be a whole lot of those that struggle, and they are, especially right now. With the economy like it is, nonprofits are struggling. But a lot of people have come to question how nonprofits actually use funds. It's a model that is 
somewhat antiquated, frankly, and we're seeing a whole lot of new things kind of take its place. So can you have something that would benefit mentally disabled adults? Sure. There are organizations where they have them do like simple assembly task, where they have them do you know, functions that don't require a lot of finesse. And in doing so, you get contracts for projects that actually create profit. Now, to do that totally, you know, maybe a challenge, but yeah, I think it can be done. Be creative in how that can be put together. It may not need to be either or. I mean, you may still be set up where you can take donations or apply for grants, but you can do that as a non, as a for-profit entity. I mean, you don't have to, I mean, people can give you money in a for-profit business if they consider that to be marketing. I mean, a lot of the things that we do through 48 Days are essentially donations, but instead of framing it as a donation, we just consider it marketing. So if we give to a nonprofit organization, we can give to them. We can give to a for-profit organization, though, as well, and still have that be considered marketing. So it's, you can put this together, but be, create a good business plan for how you can see it working. Do the work that you think is honorable and worthwhile to do, and there are ways to make that work financially. This one comes from David who says, Dan, I attended your Right to the Bank conference in June. It was awesome. I came back home fired up, full of ideas. Got my book self-published through Amazon's Create Space. Extremely easy, very affordable. I'm now working on marketing the book for Christmas. Um, my book is called I Believe a Christmas Story. I set up a website, I Believe in Christmas. You know, I think I answered this previously, but I've got it in this week's as well. Mm, if I did, I apologize. But anyway, I'm sure David won't be offended if I just give some pointers again. But I, I'm familiar with this title, and I think I may have answered it previously. But this is a time frame. I mean, I'm answering this now. We're at the end of October. So we've got 60 days till Christmas. Yeah, you can do things to increase activity there. I mean, I would encourage people to let people see a significant part of your book on the website. Don't just have the title and say, you know, pay here. Let them see it. I mean, I don't care if you let them see the whole thing. I mean, you can give people the entire content and they still buy a copy. So they have essentially a souvenir. They have the real copy of what they've already experienced and enjoyed. I mean, start a blog about Christmas. Connect with other people who are doing the same kind of thing. Those are the things you can do to drive traffic. You know, start a joint venture with somebody else that has Christmas items where your book is one of the products that they sell. And then I would encourage you to not just have one item only that you sell on any website, but to be a resource for content in a particular area. So you may have six other books that are related to Christmas, children's books, or you may have little gadgets, gizmets, decorations, those kind of things as well, and it'll help build your brand. Nate says, I started listening to your podcast, then bought your book 48 Days, No More Dreaded Mondays. I'm also listening to the podcast archives at double speed. Uh, cool. Some people are doing that. I mean, people do that frequently where they increase the speed. Dr. Wes Connor does that, I know, increases the speed and listens to my podcast in about half the time. Uh, to me, it sounds like chipmunks, but if you can uh, still enjoy it and get the content, hey, it's a great use of time, no problem. Anyway, um, let's see, who am I talking to here? Nate says, it's somewhere in 2006 on a podcast, you talked about 48 Days to Creative Income, but I can't find that book on your site. Why is that? Nate, it's because 48 Days had content that now is covered in more detail in No More Dreaded Mondays. 
mean, I create a lot of products that have a shelf life. Most of the things that I write start as a three-ring binder or a PDF where I can just simply get it out there. I get feedback from people, we improve it, and then eventually it goes into a traditional publishing model where it's a hardback book. But I never put ideas out in a hardback book that that's the first place people saw them. Again, it kind of seems counterintuitive in a way. You think, well, gee, you buy a book, you want brand new content. Nah, not really. I mean, not these days. I mean, that's going to be content that, that came from, in my case, you know, my, my blog, my newsletter, podcast. We've discussed it. I've gotten feedback to refine it, make it better. And that's going to be true for most books out there. But in the same way, because of that, now, now just you know, kind of think this through with me. Success principles are timeless. I mean, I really believe that. I can go back and gather success principles from, you know, 6,000 B.C. or wherever and look at the work of Socrates and Aristotle. I mean, there are things that are timeless. But the applications, in light of how we frame them here, the applications of those success principles to make you successful in your work or business today are going to change daily. I mean, think about the things that we do now that would have never been dreamed about 10 years ago or five years ago. So the applications change. So I have products that I think become obsolete. So I'm not going to continue pushing something that I wrote 10 years ago. I'm going to have new content. So sometimes titles disappear. And and we it's funny, we get requests for things that, that we haven't had available for five or six years. And people somehow ran across it. And And again, I look for books that have not been published for 40 or 50 years. I mean, I, I go back and find things like that. And sometimes I can find a copy or then find publishing rights to something like that. It's certainly valid to do that. But yeah, 48 Days to Creative Income was the precursor of what is now No More Dreaded Mondays. Matthew says, uh, hi, Dan, Matthew from holyoatmeal.com. Success. I was a frustrated 30-something worship leader earning little money, feeling victimized with no real options. Through the 48 Days community and resources, I was encouraged to tweak my work model from full-time church staff to getting paid for just weekends, allowing me to double my income through multiple pursuits while still using my gifts. Awesome. So it's just a testimonial how he's doubled his income, still doing his ministry work, but framed it differently to allow him to be in there. There's an example of doing work in the nonprofit world and work in the for-profit world, combining them, and that's a great Great model for that. Richard says, I've been told that one should never give negative information about a previous employer during an interview, but I was being pressured into charging for services that were not performed. And when I objected to this, I was told to do this as I was told or else. I took the or else and quit. Should I mention this? No, you should not. Now, I know that you took the high road. You took the route of character and integrity but it still is not something to bring up in an interview tell them you can tell them there was not a great fit where you worked previously but to share something like that is a real slam it's easy to well for one thing it's easy to to know or check where it is that you worked previously and if you say that you were asked to bill for services that were never performed, I mean, you have a real liability issue that's opened up. And it would not be wise to do that, no matter how true it is. You don't want to have to defend yourself in court against a company that has attorneys and big bucks involved. You wouldn't want to do that. I had an encounter recently with a gentleman 
who was asked as part of his duties to secure the services of a prostitute for a customer who was going to be in town for the weekend. He refused to do that. Now, he wasn't fired immediately, but it created a very antagonistic environment, and ultimately, he did quit and move on. But now, would he go to the next interview and describe what was asked of him? No, this is a very well-known, prominent company. But you'd be surprised the things that happen behind doors. But no, don't, don't, don't tell that. Don't say anything negative about your previous employer. Because no matter what it was, no matter what a breach of morality or ethics it was, it's still going to be heard in terms of, wow, I wonder if there will be something here in the next year or so that he'll be spreading out there that we do wrong. It just is not appropriate. Just don't do it. Hold your head high and move on. Bernard says, I'm really, really burnt out of my current job. I love doing seminars and workshops on personal and organizational vision empowerment. I've done workshops in churches, prisons, some personal coaching. I get great compliments on how inspiring and motivating the workshops are. What do I need to do to make this full time? And uh, Bernard's website is Lead to Impact. Well, Bernard, I think you're I think you're well down the road. I mean, you've got your site up, you've got your presentation content already in place, and you've got a track record of doing workshops. I mean, you're really well down the road, but you just need to create a marketing plan. What is it you're going to do so that you fill your schedule and very quickly supersede the income that you're making in your current job? Very doable, very predictable. You can do this. Go to nurturemarketing.com. That's a site, Jim Cecil, involved there, but you'll see a process that I have used to do exactly what you're talking about. When I started doing corporate workshops and seminars, I knew I wanted to ramp that up because it was so, so stinking profitable. I wanted to I wanted to have that be a significant part of my business as I was building the personal coaching and writing, which take longer to create significant income. So I identified about 120 companies that would be prospects for what I was going to do. And you can do the same thing. You identify 100, 120 companies in your target area, and that should be right where you are. You don't have to travel around the world to do this. But identify those and then do a process we call nurture marketing, where every month they receive something from you, an article that you thought would be helpful, a tidbit about the industry that they work in, not just sales brochures. Don't wear them out with just sales brochures, but become a resource of information that helps them in the area you want to train in so you create for yourself top of mind positioning so that when the need does come up you're the first person they think of and in that you can fill your schedule so create a clear marketing plan don't just be a guy that you expect everybody to find out about because you do great workshops you target the audience and you give yourself a reason to contact them once a month for a year and you're going to blast your schedule full more than you can handle Trenton says, I love to travel abroad, but I always have to come back to make more money in the corporate world to continue my travels. Any ideas? Yes. Just so happens. We've had a guy who was just recently here. Author, young author, hot new book. The guy's name, Chris Gilbo. And the book is The Art of Nonconformity. He's doing exactly what you're talking about. Chris has a goal to visit all 
identified 192 countries before he's 35. He's now 32, and he has about 21 countries remaining out of the 192s. He's doing that. And the Art of Nonconformity will tell you exactly how to travel abroad and make enough money. He's got on his site, The Art of Nonconformity, uh, just put that in. I forget the site. I think it's Kiss Gillib- Chris Gillibu, but again, he's got a hard-to-spell last name. But just put in The Art of Nonconformity. You're going to find it. His blog is getting a lot of attention. And he has a manifesto there about how in 279 days he turned his writing into enough income that he could live. And you can download the manifesto free. But get the book, The Art of Nonconformity. Go to Amazon. You can get it there right now for $5.99. Now, even Chris isn't quite sure why they're doing that. And I certainly am not. They limit your copies to three, but they're selling them for $5.99. So it, it's a must-have if you want to live a nonconforming life. Landon says, recently I heard you come in on people who want someone to give them a job. I think John Wayne said it best in the movie McClintock. John Wayne says, I don't give people jobs. I hire men. You give me a fair day's work, I pay you a fair day's wage. You won't give me anything, and I won't give you anything. Well, good comment. Thanks for sharing that, Landon. Yeah, there are a lot of people who expect somebody to give them a job. Like, like that's a charity operation. Like, they're a nonprofit, and they're supposed to give out jobs. Well, companies primarily, typically, are not looking to give anybody a job. What they're looking for is somebody who's going to help them achieve the success that they're trying to have as a company. So if you reframe what you're doing, you go in and you tell them. When, when I started a little company years ago called Auto Appeal, and I was going to do accessories for new cars. So I was capable of doing the little pinstriping and dorage guard and wheel up molding. And then we did roll bars and brush guards and running boards and sunroofs and stereo systems and rust protection and all that. But here's how I frame that. I would go into a new car dealership. And rather than saying, gee, you know, I I put pinstripes on cars, you know, and I charge $56 or whatever to do that. You know, will you let me do that to your car? Well, what's an answer to that going to be? I mean, it's going to be, No, gee, we don't need to spend any more money on that car. We've had it here for 30 days. I would go in and I'd say, I noticed that you have four Ford Escorts on your lot. If I put a sunroof in one, I charge you $150. You charge $395, which is the going rate for a sunroof. That gives you an extra $200 margin in your profitability on a car where you may not have that much margin initially at all. If I do put a package on pinstripes, Dorage guard, wheel up molding. It'll dress the car up. That package is 80 bucks, but you can charge $295 for that. So now we've built in another $400. So what I would do in that is I would simply help the dealer be more successful in what they were doing. I would show them how they could make more profit margins. Well, what do you think happened to that little business? I mean, it exploded. I was successful immediately. I I had relationships with the new car dealers very quickly where I would go in and do pretty much what I just described. I see you've got seven escorts on the lot this morning. What if we did this package on three, this package on two, boom, this one on one, and the dealer would say, do it. I mean, that's literally what he would say. This was back before Nike and all that, but uh, the dealer who owned that 
dealership would just say, do it. I would just go do it. I had complete freedom to do those packages, knowing that anything I did was going to increase the profitability that they had in going to the customer. If you do that with a company, guess what? Yeah, you're going to get a job, but it's not going to be because they felt sorry for you. It's going to be because they clearly understand the value you bring to what they're trying to do. Hi, Dan. Rob says, I'm considering a business idea where I would attend conferences, workshops, etc., to review them on a podcast or a blog. My target audience is individuals considering enhancing their skills through these conferences and workshops, but they're weary of uh, are leery of attending an event that it may not be worthwhile. I would review these workshops based on a list of objective and subjective questions that would evolve over time based on customer needs. My idea is still in the very early stages, so I wanted to get your thoughts on how to best make money in providing this service. Any thoughts, Rob? I think this is a tough business model. In the month of October, I have I, I will have attended five workshops and seminars. Some of those where I'm a speaker, some where I was just an attendee. I don't know that my decisions would have been biased one way or another in seeing one person's review. No matter how objective you claim to be, we're still talking about a lot of subjectivity when you're reviewing the value of or content of a workshop. You can go to a workshop, you can have 50 people in there and all 50 of them gain something differently. It impacted them in different ways. Somebody may have just helped a person be a better mom or a wife. Whereas somebody else had helped them, you know, make another $50,000 in real estate transactions the next year. It's hard to quantify the specific value of workshops and seminars. Now, I, I may be overlooking something here. Feel free to uh, correct me or help me expand my vision. But I don't see this as a very viable business idea. I think it'd be hard to have people. I, I, as a consumer, and what you are describing as a revenue model is people who are thinking about going to a workshop and listening to their input then to decide whether or not you want to go, but paying for that information. I don't know that I would, I don't think I ever have, but I don't know that I would be willing to pay for somebody's opinion about a workshop that I was thinking about attending. Now, anybody who's put on a workshop ought to be smart enough to have testimonials about from tons of people who have been there. Now, those I do like to see and those I do read. And if I want to contact the person who attended, get more information, I can do that. But I think this is a very tough niche to try to carve out. I think there are probably easier ways to create a business model that'll give you some money. This question comes from... Um, Oh, I'm not sure. It appears the first name is Doherty on this. I may be wrong on that. But anyway, I would like to open a fitness center, but don't know how to start. I discovered my passion is exercise. I cannot miss a day. I'm 26 years old. I've been doing that since I was 20. How can I make a living out of it by helping others maintain a healthy life? I've got a degree in it. When you, when you see you want to open a fitness center, I mean, we're talking about something that is very capital intensive. Something that requires a whole lot of money, leases, sign permits, employees, fitness equipment. I mean, we're talking big bucks to do that. At 26 years old, having just personally exercised for the last few years, I don't think this is a place to start. How about being a personal trainer for a couple of years where you just simply let your services be known? You can do that through an existing fitness center. 
where they get 20% of your income, but you hang your hat out there, meet with people and do the workouts there. I mean, there are fitness centers that'll do that all day long. So you build your own clientele of personal clients. Or what about just working in a fitness center for a couple years? I mean, the best way to learn how to run a business is to work in that business, in somebody who's already doing that business and be there for a couple years. If you want to open your own restaurant, first thing I'm going to recommend is you go to work in a restaurant for two or three years. Learn on somebody else's nickel. Do that. And, and really, I mean, be careful about how you're looking at this because having a degree and knowing about nutrition or physiology, personal fitness, diet, I mean, those things have little to do with running a business, whether it's a fitness center or something else. Running a business, a fitness center, you're going to have a whole lot of things that you're contending with there that are not very directly related to helping people stay healthy. It's just part of running a business. So get your feet wet, but uh, don't be too eager to open a fitness center. That's a totally different animal. Jim says, is it possible to make money using only a blog? Traditional advice includes ads, affiliate links, etc., but I can't seem to see a viable economic model with these methods. I'm always giving computer advice in person and would like to monetize the advice somehow. Can blogs generate income by themselves or can they only serve as a marketing tool? That's a, that's a good question and a very legitimate question. And it's one of those areas that is evolving and changing as we speak. For the most part, blogs have been simply a marketing tool. But with new websites, our 48 Days websites are on WordPress templates. There are a lot of major blogs that are on WordPress where it is both a website for somebody and their blog site. And as such may have ads and affiliate links and things in there. Now, one of the best examples of this is Mike Hyatt's blog. Mike is CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers. He has a very active blog and it's extremely well done and it's extremely profitable. And you can go there, Michael Hyatt, H-Y-A-T-T dot com, and you'll see what he's doing. I mean, it, it's very open. I mean, all down the right-hand side, there are advertising spots. And he you can click right through and see how much it costs, what it takes to get something there. So if, if you go to his site, you're going to see a whole bunch of things. If you get one of his blogs, it's probably going to be tagged at the bottom with a special announcement about something as well, which is another paid for promotion. But check that out. So yes, you can. I mean, if it's well done, now you have to be careful. I mean, it's like doing doing a podcast. People are drawn to podcast as opposed to traditional talk radio because you don't have the incessant ads that you have to listen to. I mean, that whole industry is changing these days with TiVo and you know, non-commercial radio, you can avoid the ads. I mean, my podcast is 48 minutes long. Well, guess how long, how many, how many minutes of advertising and news there are in a traditional talk radio hour? They're 12 minutes. So what we've done is taken straight content, no commercials at all, and it's over in 48 minutes. And of course, for those of you technological geniuses out there who listen to it at twice the speed, it's over in 24 minutes, I guess. But be careful about just loading a bog up. If people see it as just your billboard, 
promoting things. They won't take it seriously. So you have to engage people in the content first. Now, I haven't said that. I mean, I think I could do something on my blog. I don't. I haven't. But I'm not saying that I never will. But I've been doing it for about four years now and have an audience that I think is loyal enough that if I wanted to put something in there and I promote things on here. I mean, I just promoted Nurture Marketing just a few minutes ago. I mean, that's a product that you purchase. I don't have any kind of affiliate set up with them and and they don't, I don't get anything because you go there. I mean, I told you to go buy Chris Gillibu's book, The Art of Nonconformity. I just said, go to Amazon and get that. Well, if I had links to those things on my blog, they are things that I believe in. They are things that I think can help you in your own path to success. So it would be legitimate to have those, but have it structured in a way that I do make income. So yeah, I think you can do that. And more and more, I think we're going to see people who are doing that and doing it well. Let me grab a couple more here. Dan, this comes from Jerome, who says, I'm a news videographer and editor who's looking to use my media skills in a more exciting way. Do you have any suggestions? Well, that that's an industry that is changing. And I do a regular piece on Fox News here locally in Nashville every morning, every Monday morning. So... I rub shoulders with a lot of the journalists and videographers and TV personalities and all that. And boy, they are just scratching their heads every week. It's, you know, who still has their job? Who's gone? What are we doing differently? Now we change. Now we have, we have the weather and uh, traffic on the sevens is the newest thing. Every thing that hits a seven is going to have weather and traffic. So it's changing a lot. And a lot of people who had a heart for traditional media are finding that they're standing on a street with a camcorder on their shoulder wondering what to do. So be creative in what you can do. I mean, you could work with perhaps authors and speakers and helping them do videos to promote on their sites. I mean, look at what's happening on YouTube. But again, that kind of undermines what videographers do because on YouTube, you don't have to have fancy equipment or a fancy setup or be a producer. You just simply shoot it. And if it's got good content, it's there, even if it's poor quality. Get creative about the 10 ways that you could use your skills aside from traditional news because I think that is a model that's getting tougher and tougher to find a place that's profitable. But there are new things that emerge. Anytime something disappears, there are new opportunities. I mean, that's one of the old adages from Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill years ago. Every time there's change, they're the equal seeds of new opportunity. And I really believe that. So look at what are the new opportunities. I mean, you could video, videograph uh, somebody's, the contents of their house, where they then put on a CD and put it in a safety deposit box at the bank. So they've got a, an accurate accounting of any, everything that they own if something happened to their house, their house burned down. I mean, just look for creative things like that, but make a list of 10 and then act on those. Let me grab one more. Jeff says, Dan, I'm looking at starting a membership business where members would purchase a savings card and receive savings at various businesses in about a 60-mile radius. My plan is to have businesses in different categories. What would be my best approach to get businesses to come on board? I would like your input. Jeff, this is one of those, again, I think there's so much going on. There's so much noise in this space that you're talking about. I mean, we get so many magazines that are discount coupons for businesses. Clipper, coupon magazines, it just goes on and on and on and on. 
the things that we get, the little card packs, the card decks, where businesses have been approached and said, if you pay us, we'll put a discount for your business in this thing. People will get it and they'll flock to your door. Groupon. I mean, look at what Groupon has done. I mean, they have just rocked the country where every day you get something in your local market where you get a dramatic discount, usually 50% or more, on a product or service right there. So that's the newest, hottest rage. What you're talking about is a long-term process to get businesses engaged and then offer a savings card. It's been so overused, I think it's hard to take it seriously. I mean, you can get discounts. You can get discounts on it. There are health cards where you're going to get... 15% discount anywhere you go. Well, you can negotiate a 20% discount if you just ask for it at any place. So it's not really a unique value. It doesn't really hold a lot of perceived value. Now, again, I hate to be negative. I've been negative on a couple ideas this morning here, but this is one that, I mean, there are companies out there right now. One, there's a real hot thing going around where if you pay 200 bucks and you get a couple other people involved, then you get a $200 gift card at Walmart and they promote it in that you'll never have to pay for groceries or gas again. MPB, my premier business is one of the ones that's doing that. You can check that out. You know, to me, that's a tough model to make work. It just doesn't have enough unique value to keep going. It's not exciting, new, revolutionary. It's just pounding down the same path that a lot of people have pounded down. And when you talk about having a savings card and where people can get discounts at particular businesses i just don't think it has enough value i think it's really hard to make that work i think you have to be you have to find again a unique place you have to find something that you where you can really add 10 percent value to something where it's not been done in that way before that's what you have to do in order to really have something that's going to create the kind of business model and income that you want to have well, you hear Taking Care of Business there, my favorite song. Yes, coming up again. That means we're at the end of our time here. Hey, join us on 48days.net. If you haven't gotten involved there, check out that growing community. Over 7,500 people there now sharing ideas, getting advice from other people. Great way to put legs in your idea and grow it as well. Whatever you're doing, I know that you're enjoying this process of finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Have a wonderful week.